0: Schumacher hits David Coulthard and he's out! George Russell is the Formula 2 champion! Oh! oh. Hitchcock
1: with a big one! Big one! Welcome to The Monkey Seat, the podcast that is absolutely unique,
2: except for the one behind it, which is identical. My name is Tom. And I'm Carl. And I don't make mistakes, I make prophecies which immediately turn out to be wrong. We
1: are a fully independent podcast hosted by two opinionated friends who like to put the world to
2: rights. Uh, visit our website monkeyseatpod.com and follow us on all the socials at monkeyseatpod
1: you can find us on all major podcasting platforms including YouTube by searching for the monkeyseat podcast
2: and if you like what we hear and even if you don't like what we hear leave us a five star review and we will give you a shout out why has no one done this recently give us a review
1: yes we've had we've we've had our, our one star reviewers gone so uh, that, that's, that's good thank you uh, so that's good we're all back on five stars but uh, yeah give us a five star review and we will give you a shout out uh and on His today's Boobie's podcast back no well don't yeah. yeah he's probably gonna leave us a one-star review again now um yeah. on today's podcast we summarize uh f1 testing
2: results and share our wrong opinions i don't have any opinions because i didn't even see it okay fair enough
1: but what <laughs> what else are we doing on this podcast today
2: <laughs> have we interviewed T- T- and we interviewed tino belli the director of aerodynamic development for indycar i'm gonna actually learn something that's my plan.
1: And we also pay tribute to the legend that is Murray Walker after the 97-year-old ex-commentator sadly passed away this week. Well, that that took a lot longer than we wanted, that
2: opening yeah. sequence. <laughs> I mean, for starters, um, that, that's, that, that was like a proper preview. That was like a what's coming up this week on
0: yeah. Rocky Z
1: Pod. Um, I, I thought we could, we should, we should do that a bit more often, so people.
2: Yeah, that, we probably should.
1: Yeah, because then people could listen to the start and be like, actually, that sounds shit. I'm not going to bother. So, um, I mean, no. Well, no, actually,
2: we... well, yeah, all of that is shit. Apart from the fact that I didn't watch testing, so this would be an interesting discussion when we do <laughs> talk about testing. Okay, you're
1: just, um, you, you can just log off, and I'll just talk yeah, about it on my own. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'll have opinions that will make no sense to anyone. I'll um, ring up Baron
1: and get him on live, and we can do it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there are other podcasts that have done. T- <laughs> Just pass them over to them. Um, yeah. uh, but yes, uh, very sad to hear about the yeah. Murray of the Walker, um, the voice of my youth. I literally, all I remember is sitting on my sofas and listening to him go, 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 you know.
1: I, I heard like I, I think they said this during testing what I thought was really interesting the fact uh, I think it was Ted Kravitz that said it it was uh, that, that whole go 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 is, is to create you've got that couple of seconds of uh, of nothing happening whilst you're waiting to see who's got a good start and who hasn't and it's yeah. completely in there by design to, to allow that bit of breathing space while you can then just figure out who's doing what so they
2: right? is that why they, and, they, and they've never that for why um, lights formulary. out and away
1: we go that's yeah. like the same thing lights or out and away we go
2: and it's it's green in and it's going green in Saudi Arabia or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. So I think that's.
1: And we that's go obviously... green
2: in Saudi Arabia. That's the line. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't realize that, you know, like the, you a lot of people, like we, we pointed out two of the stupid things he said, you know, just at the beginning there. And, and unfortunately he does get done for those stupid moments that he's had, but like, he was a very knowledgeable man and very clever man. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I some mean... of the stuff that came, he, some of the, Amazing thing. And I, I, you know, but bless him, 97. What an innings. Mm,
1: yeah, you know. no, he's, um, he's uh, my earliest motorsport memory uh, was. I I can't say for certain I would be into Formula One if it weren't for Murray Walker, because I just remember my earliest motorsport memory of Nigel Mansell chasing Ettencener, having had a puncture and had to change his tyre at the Monaco Grand Prix, and coming out behind him, and just the voice of, Nigel Mansell on fresh tyres, we'll pass Ettencener, and yeah, no,
2: he didn't, Murray. uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, I've just read the diary. Are you sure you want to write Tom's Touching Mansell's Bump? No, that's uh, that. My 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 memories. <laughs> that's what it says. Yes, it I know it does, and it's because my, one Shared of my memories. Share memories. <laughs> tribute quotes. Tom's touching Mantle's bum.
1: Yeah, bump. <laughs> Dump. it's uh when uh when mansell when mansell had a had a crash and had a big bump on his head and murray says i'll oh, lift your hat up there Nigel so we can see that bump and then he just pokes it <laughs> completely <laughs> right. accidentally but it was uh one of the most memorable moments of murray's, uh, murray's career. i
2: did wonder what that was about i had yes. quite I, I hadn't seen that and like i was just like why is tom touching mansell's bump <laughs> like that's really confusing we'll see if that makes the final cut but, yeah yeah we'll see um i hope it does yeah uh, absolute that, um, legend and he will be sorely missed absolutely yeah, sorely missed. he will be and just the look of know anyway, i mean he was the david attenborough of formula one wasn't he in some ways you know his voice was so iconic yeah with it and you knew instantly what you were watching just by his voice set the standard uh, set the stand and yeah and and just the, the and just such a fun man and i'm sure lots of better people have better stories about him but I just mm. found him really interesting and and it was great like and but and, and I'm and I'm glad that he went out for so long you know um and 97 won an innings mm. to have for for someone that you know traveled the world and had quite a life
1: and for someone um, that would that made so many mistakes doing the job that they're paid to do he was just so universally loved just like it was it was like it was like your favorite uncle that always said racist comments at dinner you still love him
2: <laughs> i mean i don't have that uncle but maybe you do tom i don't have a racist uncle but uh <laughs> is that yeah. what you just said yeah no i'm saying hypothet
1: like, the fast. hypothetical racist uncle that, and i'm also not saying that my walker's racist <laughs> i'm just going to clarify that now <laughs> So anyway, oh,
2: Tom's taking a hole. Yeah, it's funny.
1: fine. It's fine. It's. Uh, I'm just. Yeah. Oh dear God. People know what I was. People know what I'm talking about. Anyway, I, should we? Should we go? <laughs> should we um claw myself gradually out of this hole oh, by I going to going to our interview with Tina yes. Belly? Okay, here
2: we go, Tina.
1: Fantastic. So uh, with us today, we have the Director of Aerodynamic Development from IndyCar, Mr. Tino Belli. Thank you very much for coming on, Tino.
3: Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. It it is our pleasure.
1: Um, So um, a lot of people out there um, might not fully understand what uh, what it is you do. So um, what is it that uh, the Director of Aerodynamic Development of IndyCar actually does?
3: So uh, the, the job roles change a little bit over the years. I joined IndyCar in 2014, which was uh, just prior to the introduction of the manufacturer aero kits. I think you might remember that Honda and Chevy came in to do aero kits onto the DW12. Mm-hmm. So um, the rules had all been formulated, and I came in as the policeman on uh, on those aero kits. Um, which was a uh, was interesting, uh, and then it sort of changed a little bit later. After a couple of years, Chevy and Honda decided they didn't want to be in the aero kit business anymore. It was really really expensive, and uh, so uh, the IndyCar decided we go back to uh, spec aero kit, which was. Mm, commonly known as the uak 18 Universal Aero Kit for 2018 so that was for me that was a good fun period because I worked very very closely with Jalara on that Mm um went to Italy one week in every three to work with them in the wind tunnel very 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 short gestation uh the whole car was pretty much designed in a four-month period uh beginning of 2017 um and you know a lot you guys over in Europe probably don't quite get the indie thing you know there's really two possibly three cars designed in that kit so super Speedway car Indianapolis mm-hmm. uh, single element front and rear wings uh very low drag um and then we have our more traditional road course car which is similar to your Formula 1, Formula 2 type series, three element wings, front and rear. So in that period, you have to do two cars. Oh, oh, Um, so it's
2: two separate cars, is it, that you almost create as the package?
3: uh, Obviously, we're we're a series that tries to keep our costs under control Mm -hmm. so that we can keep our car count up. Car count for us is very important for entertainment. The more cars we get on track, the more entertaining the racing. So, but... Yes, essentially, they're designed, they're designed as two separate cars, and we try to keep most of the underwing, the side pods, common to both formulas. So basically, you change the front and rear wings. It's not completely possible to do that. So the underwing has various parts that you can take in and out to try and get the downforce and everything right. And, and what's obviously, as you all well know, Indianapolis 500 is our biggest race. Mm-hmm. So we put all of the emphasis on getting that right. People want to see high qualifying speeds. We like to see high qualifying speeds, but we have to keep them under control from safety point of view. We don't want to go too fast, too quickly and have a big surprise on our hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also put a lot of effort at Indy to, um, Keep the car on the ground. So always a bonus <laughs> when you're running uh, 240 miles an hour. Uh, when the car spins, as you could imagine, you design this car to go straight ahead, give you a nice downforce when you're on your own. Suddenly, then it flies. <laughs> yes, the forces go all over the place when you spin, and the car going that's designed to stick on the ground going frontwards to tends to want to fly when it's going backwards Mm, yeah Uh, so we have a lot of um CFD cases that we do so you're trying to design a car to a a drag and a downforce to to get your top speeds right and go around the corners and at the same time you're trying to make sure that at 90 degrees of your 135 degrees of your 180 degrees of your it doesn't fly you probably remember I think it was 2015 when the Chevys had their flying cases in qualifying where we backflipped. I think, three times um, wow. when they spun.
2: Wow, wow. literally I, flying backflips. That's mad.
3: Yeah, it, it was all over the news all over the world, so I'm surprised yeah. you have sort of weren't aware of that one. Um yeah, we, um, is, we, we've, uh,
1: we're we've we both fairly new IndyCar fans. Yeah. I've been kind of the last couple of years for myself and Carl just the start of last season. So, yeah, uh, so
2: I've caught up with the last season yeah. and just getting into it. It's a very different from Formula One um, and even the other Formula's open wheel. I, you know, I hadn't quite got my head around how very different it was or is, you know. Um,
3: so, yeah, so, so you've been... IndyCar was obviously uh, when it was cart was very successful and mm-hmm. the formula format that we tend to have now we reverted all the way back so there was an infamous split between yeah and IRL I think it started in 1996 ancient history for you guys you probably weren't even born Oh, <laughs> no, so
1: no, oh, no, no. I was I was a fan. I was watching Nigel Mansell. Um, I did catch some races of kart in 93, so I'm a well aware of the split, and uh, I've just not been a, I've not been following the sport the whole time, if you see what I mean. Yeah.
3: Okay, and I was so 10. The split, the, split, the split made us an, pretty much an oval, or made the IRL half of it an oval-only series. Kart sort of carried on, I think, until about 2002. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all the CART team sort of, um, everybody realised that the Indy 500 was really the jewel in the crown. That you, the series, no series would be successful without that. And they started moving over to to IRL. So anyway, we're digressing. So 2018 was, um, you know, my job was very much working direct, directing Delara on that aero kit. 2019, we went to the Arrow screen with Red Bull technologies uh spent most of my year with uh working on that one not necessarily because it was aerodynamic it was quite aerodynamically benign the windscreen but Mm -hmm. structurally um I tend to work very very closely with Delara. so we had to have red Bull making a a red Bull f1 aero screen essentially Mm -hmm. post Fit onto a Delara monocoque, um, trying to keep the costs under control. Uh, so that was pretty exciting. And um, so, um, what made
2: you go for the aeroscreen as opposed to the halo system, which we see on the F1 cars?
3: Really good question. So we've, we'd sort of been working. Uh, people prior to me have been working with um, on just a, a wind screen. So when when we race on ovals, so we race at Indianapolis. Um, we're running 220 miles an hour on a short oval. We're running average lap speed to 175 miles an hour, very close together. So let's the, the example I always like to give is Iowa. It's an eight-tenth of a mile oval, and we have 24 cars on track. So they're typically running if it's a spread-out race, they're running like seven-tenths of a second apart. So if we've got a boring race, the cars are still seven-tenths of a second apart.
0: Yeah.
3: Hmm. That's and a boring whole, race they're cornering at 150 miles an hour hmm. so the top speed's about 185 miles an hour sorry i can't translate that into kilometers no we're, we're oh, miles an hour. we're miles. to yeah. <laughs> go with that yeah, i am
2: I'm, I'm, I'm in ireland and i'm trying to work out kilometers an hour. it's it's a different world i don't understand <laughs> it i literally don't understand it
3: so, so literally when someone some, someone crashes um you know the walls are maybe twenty to your right at the apex of a corner someone crashes at 150 miles an hour no matter how hard you try and we try very very hard there's a debris field there's bits of wings and carbon fiber and in worst cases there's cv joints and wheels mm-hmm. flying mm-hmm. through the air so um, the, the halo would protect you and this is what Formula One had done obviously for like a wheel when you think of Surtees mm-hmm. accident in Formula Two yeah. and it's designed for very big pieces of debris would have would have helped Justin Winston, Wilson there's no doubt about it but the other thing for us is if a, our driver gets hit on the head at those speeds with small pieces of debris now I'm going to change to metric you know 10 15 20 grams they're enough to concuss the driver and mm-hmm. give them bad head injuries. Um, Philippe Massa, you know, okay. That was a bit of a heavier piece. It was a spring yeah, a spring and a CV joint, similar, similar sort of masses enough to concuss or kill a driver. So when you're, when you're racing seven tenths of a second apart at 150 mile an hour, even if you see the accident and your spotter shout yellow, 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 or whatever, you're still driving through a lot of debris mm-hmm. and we just need to keep that debris away from the driver's head because that that's as lethal as a, a big piece of nose or wheel plonking you on the head mm-hmm. so we we always wanted to do that the first go round was just a screen which no we didn't feel comfortable with we we, we wanted the roll hoop mm-hmm. and um Jay Fry here had good friends at Red Bull. In fact, uh, I went to, I was at home. My mum lives in, my mum and sister live in London. I was home Christmas 2016 and that's when- I like
2: I that you still call it home. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, I, so it's always your home. Mm. Um, so I went to uh, visit Red Bull then um, and that sort of sparked it off, but we, we didn't make the decision to go with Red Bull until early 2019 so it became a big rush job because
1: mm. um, red bull um debuted a an, an aero screen in was it 20, uh, 2016 maybe um the, for formula one which was which was considered obviously they decided to go with the halo so how far away from the 2016 um aero screen is the one that indycar are using now
3: uh it's obviously an evolution uh, it's uh, we our monocoques in front of the driver tend to be lower because you need to look down at the apex on the ovals where our, our cars are. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, our windscreen is probably bigger, but it's the same laminate, it's the same thickness, uh, it has similar optics because obviously the optical quality is a big worry Hmm. so the curvature is similar Mm -hmm. um the top frame so the halo part of it is somewhat different because i think theirs was a composite halo ours is a 3d printed titanium oh really so uh the the f1 halo is a more like a machine titanium tube mm-hmm. uh, with machine titanium ours had to be a bit bigger and we had to connect it to strong points on our existing tub strong point being the dash bulkhead where the dash bulkhead intersects with the monocoque at the front and then we went to the base of the roll hoop at the rear um we went there because one of the other issues we can have on a super speedway is um getting up into the fencing head first mm-hmm. yeah. uh, so if you can imagine you get up into the fencing head first and your head hits a pole and Ouch. the fencing pole is not very nice at all uh, we didn't like from the side view the current fia halo sort of comes down at the back probably to see the driver's helmet or to attach to strong point of the tub mm. we felt that the pole could sort of like follow the contour of the halo like a cam follower mm-hmm. and we didn't want the pole possibly riding down and clonking the top of the driver's helmet so our halo stays constantly above the driver's head and conveniently attaches to a very nice strong point of the tub which is where the current uh, roll hoop attaches to and um,
2: and then with that, like, you said that this is one that's been the last couple of years, and then it came on last year, if I was correct, didn't it, onto the yeah. IndyCar? Yeah, COVID, um, year. And, and has there been any sort of developments in, like, for this year, or, like, especially with the, that there was lots of, if, if I want for a better word, complaints from drivers about the temperature and the heat in there? Does yeah, that think,
3: affect so the it? whole? yeah the whole year ended up being uh it made for a definitely a worst case situation so um normally we try not to race at the hottest time of year so all of our tracks we're looking for nice weather but not super hot weather because our fans don't want to be out when it's super humid and all the rest of it so we tend to follow the weather up and down the country because of covid uh we were unlucky that we ended up racing where we could and when we could so uh if you if you follow the temperatures of the races on average it's about oh gosh you're gonna hate because you don't like fahrenheit i'm sure
2: oh, i haven't got a clue about fahrenheit that's a whole new world <laughs> to me
3: i know
1: 80 is hot that's about as far as is i it, go is with it, fahrenheit. i wouldn't even know
3: i literally so, have no idea. So on average, on average, our road course races was 85 degrees Fahrenheit, which is mm-hmm. hot. Which is hot. <laughs> I'm thinking that's about 32 degrees centigrade. Oh, that's mm-hmm. warm. That's the same body temperature. And so normally our races are typically at 70 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit. So we had, uh, so I think if you divided by about 1.4 mm-hmm. The difference and take the difference so let's say 10 degrees centigrade 1.4 it so probably about eight degrees centigrade cooler than that so let's say 24 25 degrees centigrade yeah so still and then and then we ended up having to get all the races in we did a lot of double headers so mm-hmm. we're all my recovery time here so like you sweat off a lot of fluids normally you drink your fluids over a period of days to try and put that back into your body, and we often would finish a race at um, 4 or 4.30 p.m. on Saturday and race again at 12 a.m. 12 midday on the following day. So very little time Termite. to get fluids back into your body, uh, which made it a lot worse. Um, and the other problem that we had, we had, we have a history, a good history. So one, one of the problems you always get at Indianapolis with a driver with an open cockpit car is helmet buffeting. So that could be side to side, could be pushing forward, could be lifting up and strangling them. Uh, so over the years, we, we've studied that in CFD enough that we pretty much know what forces the driver's head, the driver can take on his helmet in that respect. But since the, the last time that we had any real problems with driver cooling, um was back in the cart days when the Mm. cockpits were much tighter around the driver the cockpit opening was smaller so there was less airflow getting into the cockpit and um, of course we had no cfd studies from 1996 or 1994 so we had no recent history of what was an acceptable airflow around the driver's body to cool uh, so we had to do guesswork, we had structural, uh, we couldn't put great big holes in the monocot for structural reasons. So we just had to go with, hey, we'll make the opening at the base of the um, error screen on where the damper cover is as big as we can yeah. uh, to satisfy the structural loads. And we'll somewhat hope uh and we'll adapt to cooling the drivers um to what they need and we thought we were okay going into the season we tested at sea bringing some pretty hot weather with sebastian baudet who's normally one of our most critical uh <laughs> drivers who let's say most honest drivers you know, <laughs> as it is he won't sugarcoat it in any way and he was he was uh he was confident I remember talking to his race engineer at the test, which was Craig Hampson at the time. And Craig told me halfway through the day, he said, Wow, this test is going really, really well. I was shit scared. Maybe, no, I shouldn't use a word like that. Oh, um, you're fine. Was, you're you're fine. fine. I was really scared that he was going to just be so antsy about it, the whole thing uh you know he's also a guy who wears spectacles you know we hadn't actually had a guy with spectacles behind the aero screen before and he was he was just like a little kitten so we were we was quite confident mm-hmm. and to be honest um 50 to 70 percent of our drivers don't complain about the heat in the car we have one team telling us one championship winning team telling us to um don't do anything. It's fine. We like it as is. And then we have another championship caliber team, which are telling us that all of their drivers are absolutely, you know, exhausted and have no drinks at the end of it. So as you saw, we we added through the season, some cockpit cooling, I I call it a WRC scoop, like a world rally car scoop or a Paris Dakar scoop on the front edge of the aero screen which we made optional because as i said some some drivers didn't think they needed it uh, but you know anything like that has an aerodynamic deficit and uh, don't want to run it because you know we're saying hey you should trade driver cooling versus aerodynamic deficit there's no free lunch out there yes if the driver's getting too hot cool cooling down and take the aerodynamic penalty if a driver's super fit and he doesn't need it, don't run it.
1: I like that you made that optional. That's uh, it's like, yeah, if you're moaning, then yeah, um, fine. Have a speed well, deficit.
3: Well, politics unfortunately comes into everything at the end mm. of the day. And probably this year, if the ambient condition, if the temperature is going to be above a certain temperature at the race start, we'll look obviously a couple of days before the event, mm. the weather predictions are pretty close. If the temperature is looking at that, it's going to be above 80 degrees Fahrenheit, whatever that is in centigrade, and we can go and use the iPhone to, cut, to convert it. Um, we will probably mandate that, that, uh, that duck this year.
2: Um, so just listening to you here, you're obviously not American. And you said yeah. home is in London. And you were born in Wales, if I remember you saying correctly.
3: Home, home is Swansea.
2: Home is Swansea. How did a Swansea boy who, um, I'm guessing, supports Swansea Football Club. I know this because we spoke about it before we started. Um, <laughs> how did you end up in India? How did it all start? What really got you into, into racing, motorsport, full stop, and then crossing the pond? Uh,
3: so um, obviously, my parents were Italian immigrants and a fish and chip shop
1: nice uh, is it still
3: there i think it is the last time i went down there <laughs> it's not in the family anymore it got oh. sold many many years ago um so being from an italian background um cars cars are important and ferrari are who you support <laughs> uh we're talking about the 70s here uh, there wasn't any formula one wasn't on tv very often i think it was just the british grand prix and maybe the monaco grand prix that used to get live mm-hmm. uh and actually very interestingly the thing that sort of got poked my interest was um a durex 30s you guys can go back and look at it the bbc refused to show i'm yeah I'm, a, I'm
1: aware of this story yeah
3: <laughs> but the, the the uh, BBC refused to show the British Grand Prix because of the Durex charities and that just like got me way into racing. Up until then, I'd been a, a rugby player. My ambition had been to play rugby for Wales. <laughs> Very um, different. And, and that got me into into racing. Uh, went through you know school. I was good at math at school. So that was that always led me into that side of it. I thought I was going to go into the family business with my dad. I never really thought anything about, um, you know, further education or anything like that. My sister, who I always considered to be the clever one of the family, she she was in the university in London. She came home at Christmas one year and said, um, "Where are you going to university?" And I said, "What university?" And she said, "You've got to go to university." And I said, "Okay." Uh,
2: oh it was a simpler life back then
3: so i I said what should i do and she said well you like uh race cars so you should do engineering oh actually no i was going to i said okay i'll become i'll I'll do medicine just out of the blue i said i do medicine like you (laughs) She said no no you don't want to do medicine it's horrible uh lots of blood and i know you don't like blood and all that so um so i said well what should i do she said well you like um Racing cars, so you should go and do engineering. So I said I looked at the, the book. I think it was the Acker book. I don't know if it's still Acker now. Um, said, oh, mechanical engineering. That oh, Ucas. Good. Yeah, we uh, call it Ucas. I like yeah. getting greasy and dirty. Let's do mechanical engineering. <laughs> and she nice. said, oh no, you don't want to do that. I knew someone who did mechanical engineering, and they always had dirt under their fingernails. So, uh, so she said. Um, you like racing cars, they're all about aerodynamics. low to 79, ground effect or whatever. So she picked aeronautical engineering for me. And she <laughs> picked my university, Imperial College London. One of the so, best. It's quite so, good. So off I went. Uh, joined the motor club, clearly. Started doing 12 car rallies, which were road rallying back then uh grew with my friend into doing london counties rallies. so we go through berkshire and hampshire in the middle of the saturday nights uh driving like lunatics <laughs> uh and i mentioned that because that's really how i i eventually got into it professionally so first two years out of university i did uh finite element analysis for uh nuclear power installations and then i sort of answered a advertisement for March engineering. So March engineering were the biggest race car constructor at the time. Um, and Robin heard the owner uh, at the time where I went there, he I went to interview with him and he said, Oh, I want to uh, start rallying for fun. And so, um, so he hired me. And in the day I used to do wind tunnel testing for, uh, actually for Adrian Newey, who was the IndyCar designer at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, draw the parts, go down the wind tunnel. He was in the USA. I was in England. So we did the wall of wind tunnel testing by fax. Does anybody remember what that is? I oh, do,
2: yeah. I do. that. My parents used to have one. The, the The dial-up noise almost of it coming through and then it chugging out pieces of paper on the constant reel of paper.
3: Mm. And, and so back then, none of us had laptops, so I used to print all of the notes So because it could fax, yes? I, I used to in large in capitals. Everything was written in capitals, all of what the run notes were, the forces. Fax it over to Adrian he'd read it all fax back the what he wanted done for the next test backwards and forwards and in the evening, I used to uh, prepare Robin's rally cars. So he, at the time he was a tax exile. Uh, he lived in Jersey. He could come, in, <laughs> come in for the day, believe it or not, he was allowed, I think, in the UK 30 or 60 days a year to, to <laughs> not pay British tax. Um so i used to get i used to prepare his rally car for him in the evenings i was his co-driver for him on the weekends and when he couldn't come back in the country to co-drive i used to be allowed to drive his rally cars so that was the main reason i did it because i was a budding race car driver still i wanted to be a rally driver not an aerodynamicist um yeah that came to a rude halt after two or three years when I realized I was useless. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I concentrated, words, I'm sure. So then I concentrated on uh on being an uh, aerodynamics engineer. March were massively successful as you were aware in the probably aware in the eighties over here at Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, I was seconded over here um with Craiko at the time, which was Michael Andretti, was the driver. Barry Green was the team manager. I used to fly back to England to do the wind tunnel testing one week in every month, come out to the races. And the second half of the year, I used to do the opposite. I used to design the cars and come out for the races. So I, was, I got a lot of air miles. I got okay. me into the indie scene. Um, I, just, I did do Formula One for a few years again with Robin. I worked for Robin for uh, probably 12 years. He kept changing what he was doing. Um, and uh, the aptly named FOMET1 uh, uh, which merged into the Larousse. So uh, there's a loose Formula One from 91 to 94. Briefly got back into Formula One, uh, so then I came back to the US with Robin, with Teo Fabi, and Forsyth Racing. Uh, briefly did Formula One with Arrows, uh, the famous year when um, Damon Hill almost won in Hungary. Yes. Uh, so you,
1: so you, uh, you know our last guest on the show, Mr. Mark Preston, then.
3: Uh, no, Mark, I think Mark Preston was. A, uh, he he might have been there. I was only part time at that point because oh, I, okay. had, I had a contract with uh, an IRL team then. So let's see what year that was. 1997. Yes. I had a contract with an uh, IRL team which I had to fulfil. So when I was between races, I would go into. I was in the R and D department. Um, it was a very, very, very strange affair, but um, that went away. Jo- uh, John Barnard joined, and we didn't quite see eye to eye, and so uh, I left. Came back to the USA, came back to work for Barry Green, um, which then so I was Tim Cool Green, which changed into Andretti Green, which changed into Andretti Autosport um so i moved over here permanently to, uh, 1999 because my kids are just at the right age to make the move
1: wow are so you right? spent so you spent a long time at andretti over a decade you're with you were with andretti um so what um what roles did you take up at your time with them
3: so um when I came over in 99, they wanted to start doing, so there was a, there was a company over here owned by Adrian Reynard called ARC. They had a wind tunnel that they built here. Mm-hmm. Honda. So, um, team called green at the time. There was no Andretti side to it. That was Barry green. Mm-hmm. Uh, wanted to do wind tunnel testing. Don Halliday was the technical director. And so I came over to do the wind tunnel side of the program. Uh, within, I think three months of me getting here, Paul Tracy's engineer left. So, uh, we brought in a guy called Tony Cicali, who was only a part timer, uh, to engineer that car. So then I did most of the race engineering, uh, day to day work. And Tony came in on the race weekends, as well as the wind tunnel work. Don must be something to do with me. Don then left at the end of the year. Uh, and then I became the technical director. So I was the technical director there through uh, probably 2001 to 2012. And then I went back to become Danica's race engineer, Marcus, mm-hmm. Ra- Marcos race engineer, Danica's race engineer, and then James Hinchcliffe, James Hinchcliffe's race engineer.
2: Wow, quite a, quite a move around you've had
3: there. Yeah.
2: Um, so what's your, what's your
1: best memory from your time at Andretti then?
3: Well, in my office here, I have lots of pictures of the walls of a lot of one, twos when we were team cool green, but mm-hmm. uh, the best one was when IRL started going back to road and street races. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we used to just do St. Pete and Watkins Glen back then. Uh, and we had a one, two, three, four, oh, wow. so four cars entered and one, two, three, four in the race at St. Pete. So, uh, that's a pretty hard one to, you know, most, Okay. This, this brings out my Britishness and my Italianness, mm-hmm. you know, most people would obviously say Indy 500 wins and don't get me wrong. Indy 500 wins are, are the most important thing that you could ever do. Yeah. And then after that Indy 500 poles are the next most important thing that you could ever do in this series and mm-hmm. very, very, very hard to achieve, but still a one, two, three, four caps it, you know, that's, yeah. Yeah. We had good teams at that point. You know, you had Pensky, you had Ganassi. It wasn't the I, the very early IRL where you had, you know, anybody with any with any money could sort of come along and try and do it. It was, it was fairly tough competition. Not as hard as it is now. Mm. Now the competition is extremely, you know, very very good, top to bottom in our field. Anybody can win. Mm um so to get a one
1: two three four that was that was that was the best memory i had yes brilliant so i mean to be honest it completely baffles me the the idea of designing a, an entire car like aerodynamically from scratch what's what what's how do you go about Where'd having this, this this empty sheet of paper right design a car <laughs> what do you find is that is the, is the best way to go about doing that
3: well so I haven't designed a car from scratch probably since I think 1991 would have been the last car from scratch Mm -hmm. so now you're racking my brains the (laughs) UK 18 is probably the closest to it but the monocoque was already there the engine the bell housing you know this the structural spine was already there and right we had a very good base and we decided that we weren't going to update the underwing so we had enough constraints in there that it was tough it was tough to hit all of the targets that we'd set uh but there were enough const- there were enough starting points that it wasn't from scratch like okay. from scratch you're going to have to ask someone like Adrian Newey because mm i'm not even sure i could say when we did formula one back in the early 90s that we ever designed from scratch because we were so financially constrained mm. that we always took something that was already designed so when we did the Larrousse car we took all of the, the transmission so that was a lamborghini engine with a lamborghini transmission on it so now your rear suspension is governed to you by the pickup points that are already on the transmission. Uh, We did do a new monocoque, but, you know, we kept the geometry very similar. So it's tough. I'm not sure that anybody ever completely designs from scratch. Maybe, probably the most recent one has been when Formula One introduced the hybrids. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what year that was. That's 2014, ago, they came it? in. 14? Yeah. Yes. Yeah,
2: so 14, they came in, so it must have been 13. They were designing so that, oh, was, for I about think, five
1: years. I
3: think, <laughs> I think that was that was definitely a clean sheet, because mm. in our series, um, we're a bit beholden to the engine manufacturers. So if we want to do something, we have to convince the engine manufacturers to make their engine that way. Mm -hmm. and more often than not they don't want to do it and if they don't want to do it we can't force their hand Mm. Um, I seem to remember so everybody was somewhat sceptical I think when Lewis Hamilton uh, decided to go from McLaren to Mercedes Yeah. and I think he did it for that hybrid year
1: yeah Uh, the year before it was it was 13 he started with Mercedes
3: Yeah. and one of the reasons that he gave for doing that was that he felt that the hybrid meant that if you design the power unit, I'll use your nice European terms here, because they're not engines anymore, no nope. power units. <laughs> um, if you design the power unit to the chassis, you could make significant gains over someone who had to have the power unit designed and then adapt their chassis to it. And I think time has proven him absolutely correct
1: you could say so yeah you so could I say think that
3: think he, I think he's won every, no Rosberg won one I think yeah
1: won all by one, but one.
3: sense and his yeah. teammate won the one that he didn't win so yeah. um that's a clean sheet of paper design if you can if you can integrate completely the power unit the battery locations the whatever we call MGUs, because I'm not sure what they all have in a Formula 1 car mm. right now, but it has to be immense if all of them work as one one unit. Yeah. I don't know how they start something yeah. like that. That is a good project. So
1: on that, where do, where do you see the, the future of IndyCar going? Are they going to go hybrid or hydrogen or electric, or are they going to stay combustion? Um,
3: I'm pretty sure that Jay Fry has already said that we are going hybrids mm-hmm. in 2023. Okay. Okay. So we're, and that's, we're is that, wait, is that but,
2: similar uh, to the hybrid system of F1 or is that a very different system? Like lots there's lots of hybrids. I even saw one with Lamborghini hybrid, which literally is a power converter in the back and they're calling it a, a hybrid. Is there a certain way of doing that hybrid?
3: i think uh i think it's safe to say that our hybrid is going to be more like imsa nascar world i think british touring cars have gone Mm -hmm. hybrid so it's going to be a spec hybrid system okay uh so the engine manufacturers are not designing the hybrid system ah okay our unique guys here will subcontract it so it's between delara our guys here. Um, and uh, our subcontractor for the hybrid unit. I can't say too much about it. Because no. it, hasn't been, yeah. it hasn't been put out there. It's, it's not the same as anybody else's. Mm-hmm. Um, so it will be it will be bespoke to our car and it will be different to everybody else's.
2: And is there a, like a real world, aren't, you know, reason for that, you know, as to putting it into real world cars? Your so, yeah, it's, like
3: it's applicable in a lot of senses. So, um, uh, you know, kinetic energy recovery, I I, th- I don't think we're going to have the, the turbo side of it because that's massively expensive. Mm hmm. Uh, I think even Formula One had some doubts whether that was the right thing to do. I think technologically, it's great, for but sure. it's very, very complicated and massively, massively expensive. Mm-hmm. So we we have to, you know, our, our, I think our typical budget for one car for a season is $6 million. I think some of the better teams might be getting more than that. and Some of the lesser teams can do it for less than that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the budget breakdown, there's the engine lease, clearly, which is a fixed There's the tire costs, which are fixed. The travel is a huge part of it, we're trying to cut our weekends down to reduce travel costs. But you know, we can't, we need to keep our car count up. Uh, We want drivers to be we would like our drivers to be paid so we have the best drivers wanting to be here rather than the drivers with the most money mm-hmm. uh, i'm guessing i'm guessing half of our drivers uh don't have to go out and find sponsorship now maybe it's more good. than half maybe maybe 14 or 15 of our drivers and some of the others have to have to bring money in to get a seat mm-hmm. um So, but going back to you know the the real world side of it, I think there are real world applications, but we have to design it into. So, we're not doing a new car to do the hybrid. We're basically going to be doing power units, so engine bulkheads or fuel cell backwards mm-hmm. uh, and fit it into this existing car. Um, I'm guessing there's not much room in there. Well, that's. To... So, so so now now you've hit the nail on the head of why formula one cars have become like semi-trucks or <laughs> you call them semi-trucks you call them yeah. arctic articulated mm. lorries <laughs> um you know because everything they're trying to fit in there just has to get longer and longer and longer and we don't want to get longer um
1: you're nimble don't you
3: well there's simple reasons for it. Everybody has their transporters. We fit two cars in our transporter. We make our two cars longer. Everybody's got to get, you know, Formula One Another lorry. transport one complete car hmm. by rule. We tend to our teams tend to carry out spares as assemble on assembled cars because typically our our teams have a speedway car and the road course car and the speedway car is like polished and honed to be um super super fast and they try not to use it if they can avoid it but if they have a big big crash they might have to pull it out of the trailer and and use it so we don't we we don't want our teams to go to the expense of uh longer lorries you know that's where our width Mm -hmm. of our cars are dictated to by by the by the width of the transporters the height of our car is dictated to us by how much room they have, you know, because they carry the cars up on top. Yeah. Um, because anything you do that's that's different there is just a lot of expense. Let's say we're not doing overseas races now, but we have done overseas races. We might do them in the future. We have um, frames that our cars get transported in. And if you make the car much longer, you've got to make all new frames to transport to Formula One. That's no big deal because their budgets are so huge. But to us, that means that uh, introducing an over- a flyaway race again would be uh, a very expensive proposition for us.
1: It's really interesting that, yeah. that IndyCar actually operates thinking about the you know, the the better need of the Formula as one as opposed to what the teams won it's like I've heard the phrase lunatics running the asylum in Formula One quite a lot. The uh the, the teams dictate what happens in the sport, which just seems slightly insane. So it's really refreshing to see that that say that the, the formula itself dictates what's best for the formula not not dictated to by the teams so that's really interesting
3: yeah and but the the mentality now been around for so long that the teams also want what's better for the formula mm-hmm. so formula one is such such a uh, a huge amount of money into it that they're just they're just trying to constantly compete against themselves for us, what you got to remember is we were we're typically 24 cars on our road and street races and our short ovals, but we have to get up to 33 cars for Indy hmm. um, because on a two and a half mile track, you need more cars to make the racing um interesting yes it? Oh, is mm.
2: that the reason like, i always wondered as to why Indy was suddenly thrown well, up
3: think, in the. i think it's historic mm-hmm. some, someone at some point in history picked 33. um but you know one of the successes of nascar is that they have so many cars on their track you know that there's bound to be something going on somewhere on the track because you just populate the track with a lot of cars mm someone's going to pass someone whether it's a back marker or or they're racing among themselves um so historically we're 33 indy would look it would look um very strange Uh, i don't know a couple of years ago we raced a pocono pocono is a two and a half mile track like indy we can't get 33 cars it just looks empty yeah um and so so then we got to get all these extra cars in and so the economics is you know we got to keep it such that you can probably do indie for i'm, I'm guessing i'm not a money man but for around a million dollars um to to try and get the numbers up and if i believe if the numbers haven't been up in the past we have to find the money to to fill the field which is not no. good business sense no. So we always have to be thinking about uh cost containment but on the other hand we're also um completely fair the rules we we a lot of people um criticize our push to pass uh but push to pass is a completely fair rule you know you're given so many seconds at the beginning of the race 30 seconds 40 seconds um everybody gets it it's Mm, not it's not when you're in a zone that the car behind gets it the drivers and the teams have to work out the best strategy to use the uh the extra power that they get at the beginning of the race um and ryan hunter ray said to me he said the great thing about it is um something goes wrong with your car at the beginning of the race you get you collide with someone have to pit early whatever you can use it as push to catch up mm. yeah so you might have a car that's fast enough to win the race, but you're never going to get to the point where you can slipstream the guy in front because you're just too far behind. Uh, yeah. So there's, lot, there's lots of different strategies to it. And as I said, it's com- completely fair. Um, I, think there's, I think our racing has no gimmickry whatsoever. Now, a lot of people could say the yellow flags, uh, the, a lot of people could say the safety car, but... Um, <laughs> Those rules have been in IndyCar racing since the eighties. We've always had yellow flags in the U S mm. and we were, we had the safety cars way before it ever came over to, to Euro. Don't
2: um, get me on safety
3: cars.
0: Well,
2: <laughs> I had what? a rant about them, about the formula, about the formula E one
3: recently. I, I listened to you. Yeah. <laughs> But, oh dear. But but you have to you have to understand um on our list here at IndyCar, safety is number one. Yeah. Absolutely. Whether it's the driver, whether it's the fan, whether it's the pit crew, whether it's our safety workers and corner workers. So we have a semi-permanent um safety crew. So unlike Formula One, Formula One has a few permanent, very good safety people, you know, that drive the medical cars, we saw with the Roman Grosjean incident. Mm -hmm. But because they go from country to country to country, their actual corner workers are marshals Mm -hmm. who one weekend they're doing a Formula Ford race or whatever the equivalent of Formula Ford is, the next weekend they're doing Formula One. We take all of our own, all of our guys are paramedics so they're the guys who go off in the fire engines to car accidents Mm -hmm. day in day out who fight fires who uh give cpr to people when they've had heart attacks and stuff like that they're all paramedics they're all trained by we our safety director here who is the ex fire chief of indianapolis um and we we de- try to deploy our safety guys very, very quickly. So um, let's take a, the, the Grosjean incident, very lucky that the, the medical car was coming around, the doctor directed the fire marshal and the fire marshal might have known what to do, but they got in there and they got them doing the right things quickly. In our situation, uh, when we have a big accident, we, we want to, uh, deploy the safety trucks quickly. We don't want to have the cars slow down and um, and wait to s- deploy them. So sometimes, sometimes we end up with safety trucks on the cars on the track when there are cars on the track. So it's very, very important that we get everything worded down so we can get them out there, get them working you know, in case the guy's got a neck injury or mm is on badly on fire or something like that and um, if you go back in history it's evolved it's evolved because we've had a few cases you know we IndyCar car and uh, the guises of cart before that and champ car we have killed corner workers by cars going too fast on track while they're trying to do something mm. i think not a lot of people realize that the fire marshal who got to Grosjean first actually did what he was told not to do which was he ran from the other side of the track to put the fire out yeah it was okay in that situation because it was the start of the race and so all the cars had gone through and it was going to be even if they didn't get when well, he, he raced he jumped in front
2: this. of someone didn't he i can't remember he, no you know, that,
3: maybe,
1: I, No, i think that was the perez incident at the end of the race, race.
3: Was, all right yeah that was a separate incident it does. Yeah. <laughs> i think that was off same race i think wasn't it yeah i think it's, it was anyway you know in his situation maybe he was thinking clearly and ran across but everybody fire marshals um first reaction in those situation is, you know, I can run across that car that I see coming down here at 180 miles an hour is far enough away that I'll get across there before he gets there. But, you know, I'm old enough to remember uh, Tom price. And, you know, that didn't happen. Um, So I understand how safety cars and yellows sort of sometimes make the racing fuel contrived. But safety safety needs to come first
0: yeah absolutely
3: and and then after that it's a bit like penalty penalty decisions in soccer and free kicks and whatever over a season it tends to work itself out yeah so um guys get screwed one race and they tend to make a gain another race does it work is it completely fair no but um we don't we never we never throw a yellow because a race is boring, or we want to pack it up or anything like that. It's, um, it's, it's not in our DNA to do that.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I agree that that's one thing I, I've thought about IndyCar. It, the only thing I find a little bit frustrating is the point system. I never know, like there seems to be points for everything. But <laughs> that's just that's just my uh, my own sort of pet hate look, on that. But
3: yeah, and when I first came over here, I look. I'm I'm very pro. So when I do my little, I do lots and lots of analysis on the race weekend. When I do my analysis. I don't consider the top six. I think the top ten's too deep. So yeah. I come, I come back from the days when Formula One I actually did only give points for the top six. Mm. Um, uh, but IndyCar has always given points very deep into the fields, like it's always given them down to like twentieth position or even further. So. Um, I'm not. I don't actually study up points, so I can't actually tell you what we yeah. do do. I think we get points for pole position and a point for. Fastest lap in the race. I seem to remember trying to look up the point yeah. system for the
1: Indy 500, and it, like there was there was points for there was points for like um, the the fast or number of laps led and and varying things like that. Which just see oh yeah, there's this point for like the driver who leads the most laps and.
3: Right, so I think I think our bonus points. So you get points for position, and I think our bonus points are for pole position, and for most most laps led. We don't. Mm. It's not fastest lap it's most laps lads. Right. Okay. Um, and then we do, so we do the double points for Indy. That's a very contentious, um, a lot of people don't think we should, but at the end of the day, it's our biggest race and, you know, we do spend two whole weeks in the trying to sort of get ready for that race. And I know over the winter, that's the one race that the cars are being honed and polished and smoothed and worked for. So in a lot of respects, it's the one that should get double points. We stopped giving double points for the end of season race, which is probably correct. Mm. Um, and we do give points for Indy qualifying. Um, and actually that's, you know, again, a lot of people don't think you should. So there's more points for Indy qualifying than just the one point for pole. Um, but. I think if you speak to any driver and I would love to see Roman and I I'm guessing that once he's been through Indy if we do it in May and we have a decent number of fans here um once he's seen Indy I'm hoping he will do Indy the following year
1: I think he yeah, will, because he he's on yeah. about doing one of the short ovals, I think. So Qual- I think that's to, to build up to do Indy next year.
3: But qualifying at Indy is the most terrifying four laps, and we make him do it more than once. Mm-mm. It's the most terrifying four laps that I think a driver will ever do in their life. It's terrifying for the driver. It's absolutely terrifying for the race engineer because the car is so much on edge for those four laps. Like, you think it's...
2: But it must be mad, mustn't it? Just uh... it,
0: It's,
3: you know, you think of Indy, and you say, well, it's four corners. They're all the same. They're all left-handers. Um, You've got to remember, you're barreling into that corner at 242 miles an hour. It mm. looks, the track isn't that wide. It looks really, really, I'm I'm guessing it looks really, really narrow at 242 <laughs> miles an yeah. And, you know, you have got just the amount of downforce that you need to get around that corner flat. So by the time the, you're using the goodness of the tires, every single piece. So, you know, here, here's an example for you. When people start practicing for qualifying, they will put new tires on yes because Mm, that's what you're having qualifying you'll do four laps or seven laps because there's two warm-up laps four qualifying laps and a slow down lap you'll do those laps on those tires and then you can never put those tires back on the car again so you would think that when you're doing race running you would use those tires up because a normal stint of indy is like 27 laps or something so we get another 20 laps out of those but the bonds in the rubber have been torn to shreds to just get through those four laps If you put them back on the car, the car will feel absolutely dreadful. Mm -hmm. And so you have to throw them away. And so we'll go through a team will probably so we 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 add boost for qualifying at Indy the the history of why we do that is that when the original DW 12 some something happened that the numbers someone got the numbers all wrong on the dw12 and it either had way too much drag or the engine didn't produce the power that they said it was going to produce so the qualifying speeds in 2012 were going to be way too slow so back then i wasn't at indycar i was i wasn't with the series back then Mm -hmm. someone put the boost up just for indy qualifying so now we have carried that on and on and on and on and actually last year to try and cut one boost level, out, we used to have 1.3 bar, 1.3 bar, 1.4 bar, 1.5 bar. We've cut out the 1.4 bar so that the engine manufacturers don't have to map so many boosts Mm -hmm. because we use 1.5 bar on the road courses and the short ovals, 1.3 bar on the super speedways. And we now use 1.5 bar for Indy qualifying. Now that's about a hundred horsepower boost that you get Thursday night. So on Friday, you can practice your qualifying. People will do maybe four by qualifying runs on Friday. It's five sets of tires in the bin. Um, and then you got to go through qualifying, we make them qualify on Saturday, and then again on Sunday. And um, I'm sure if you're on pole, your car feels good. But especially those guys who are in the bumping at the back, if we have like 36 cars and we only, only start 33, those guys, they're trying to trim out to get the drag out of the car. They're doing anything very last minute. Um, it is so, so scary.
1: Yeah, I think what we had uh, Stefan Wilson on last year, and he said uh, it's uh, going through Indy. is like taking on at Spa, f- um, like four times a minute for like three hours so that kind of anyone who says it's turn left racing is uh you know unless they're saying it in jest i, I yeah i I, turn I will
2: jason against the wall like yeah i uh,
1: i fully i fully um like uh, I fully admit, I was one of those people a few years ago that were saying, oh, "I don't need to turn left. What's the problem?" But yeah, no, <laughs> I I fully appreciate what those guys are going for, and it is the the absolute that is probably even beyond even Formula One levels at some points. The, uh, the the pinnacle of what you can expect a driver to do in a car. But uh, yeah, I think we've, um, we've, I could talk to you for absolute hours to be honest, because this is so interesting, <laughs> but uh, we, we are vastly running out of time. Um, so I, I would, if, if it's okay with you, just ask a couple of questions about, about you uh, to finish with. So it's like, what's, does the future hold for you? What's been your favorite car you've ever worked on and who is the most impressive driver just to finish off?
3: Um... I think the next thing for me so uh it depends just depends what happens here um I'm hoping that we decide to do a new car mm-hmm. before I retire so
1: it's a long way away yet surely uh,
3: no <laughs> um I'd love to be part of a new car so if, when when we do the next car in all probability engine hybrid gearbox will carry over so mm-hmm. we we're trying to spread the costs ultimately it costs more if you add up six years of spreading the costs. but it's very important for us to take out the big peaks so our teams know how to budget so if they have million a year, you don't want to introduce a year where they've suddenly got to find nine, because that's really hard for them to do. It's much easier for them if we can keep the spend somewhat consistent. Uh, They do understand that you can't keep it completely consistent, but you introducing the big, big, big ticket items every three years. So I'm hoping that we'll do a new car for 2026, bring the hybrid in for 23. Uh, and I'd love to be a part of that with, um, with Delara. I'm guessing it would still be with Mm Delara, Um, just because I really enjoy working with, uh, the young guys. Mm -hmm. Um, racing always used to be about young people and they're just so excited by it all and um, innovative. Uh, It's just real good fun. So I'd like to do that before I retire. Um, Best car ever most fun car ever worked with Um, the LaRousse Formula One car 91 through 94. Okay. Um, We had some very good young uh, people. One of them happens to be the technical director, James Allison at Mercedes. He was mm-hmm. just a young engineer back then. He he didn't start with us. He actually started with Benetton. Mm. Came to work for us for three years. Uh, great fun. Lot of lot of clever young people. A guy called David Scott who's just been on the america He he worked. He went to Ferrari with Ross braun Back to Mercedes with Ross Braun. And it's just been on the uh, America's Cup, the British America's Cup, oh, guy who is uh, the aerodynamicist at Mercedes Forever, Sh- Seamus Malarkey. He designs bicycles now in Switzerland. Um, I'm doing disservice, not mentioning everybody who was on the team, but it was just a lot of fun. It was a very small team. We designed a Formula One car with, I think, I think we were a total of 12 people. That includes the buyer. So Ooh, we with yeah. all the manufacturing, so like team. our accountant, director, uh, buyer, receptionist, two model makers, and the rest of the trust, All done with pencils, no, no computers in sight. Couldn't afford a computer. So I could not imagine that now.
2: I'm, I've, I've been brought up in the computer world, and like the first generation of real computer world, and I just can't, the, the, the my mind boggles how you, you didn't have a computer to design cars well, or anything I,
3: we, we had a deal at the time through larousse which got us uh, it was ATT and and we got some laptops out of that so we actually did have we did have a we wrote a little lap time simulator uh, mark hurd who's robin hurd's son wrote that uh, uh, it was just it was just fun everybody everybody knew we used to even cycle people like which job they did, because we were always worried that someone would leave or um, get ill or get knocked down or something. So we didn't have the same guy design the gearbox two years in a row, for example, or the the monocoque or the suspension. We'd cycle them while while the other person was still there so they could be tutored in different areas of the car. So everybody had a much bigger view of the car than they do now. Now, to me, Formula One is like Boeing or Lockheed or SpaceX or something mm. like that, you know, they would be so specialised. Um, what was the last question?
1: Uh, most impressive driver. Best is impossible, so I wouldn't ask you that, but who do you like for you personally is the uh, most impressive driver?
3: That I've worked with? Yeah. Uh, Dario Frankiti. Excellent. Darryl, Good choice. And, uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, his vocabulary. And oh that's really <laughs> not, that's not not cussing and swearing mm. um, he could describe and he could pick out so we all had you know when I worked with him we had all the data acquisition and stuff like that but it takes a, it takes a while if you we didn't have like the macros and the people who only looked at gearbox pressure and stuff like that you had one person who would look at the data and so he could drill down to where the lap time was on the track and his words the words that he used you know the english language is fantastic there's 10 or 15 words you can use for most things Mm. but picking the right words helps you so much yeah it makes the sentence if you pick the right word and he had that ability and i think he would be i think he could have been very 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 successful in formula one Um, yeah i agree i think i think being part of a design where he could influence where the design would go, would have been right up his street because he was very, very accurate and very, had a immense feel. And so he was, he could drive qualifying laps all day. Hmm. So again, that would have been perfect for Formula One. So we always used to say with Dario, if you put him on the front row, he'll go on and win the race. Now, if you put him three rows back, he he was a very precise everything his driving was precise you put him such that he had to like go out into the dirty line and do that ballsy overtaking move Paul Tracy was the guy for that because he was always driving on edge like every lap was on edge with Paul so Mm -hmm. um but Dario was a joy
1: excellent well that's uh as i said yeah we we could talk for hours you really could because this is so interesting but uh we we need to wrap it up there i feel so i just want to say on behalf of uh everyone on the monkey seat thank you so yeah, much thank for,
2: you so much it's been brilliant
1: yeah thank you so much for coming on board Thanks it's uh it's it's always great to hear someone actually involved in the sport especially the sport that we that we know the less about because we learn we learn so much learned, every yeah, time i'm
2: learning loads i'd like i learned so much today
0: yeah.
2: And I, you know it's one of these i'm, I'm one of those people that if if I don't know anything about it, I'm not interested in it. And as I'm slowly learning more and more about it, I'm getting more and more interested in trying to follow a lot more and indie I'm racing. Come on
3: over, it. like, if the one race that you've got to see is the Indianapolis 500, mm-hmm. Me
2: and Tom will book our tickets. We really will one day, yeah. I think. And, a couple of years' time, uh, we'll definitely but be a over. lot of
3: the other ones, our races are like, you know, Formula One this year went to some old school tracks and uh, it really did create some interest. Yeah. of our tracks are old school tracks well yeah. when we go to kota which we don't go there anymore so uh, you have to you have to deal with curbs and bumps and mm. yeah. asphalt that's got grip and asphalt that hasn't got grip and mm. it's and and you have better because we don't have as many fans you have way better access
2: yeah it's on the to-do list i think isn't it time yeah. for us to yeah. do it. Don't
3: leave it too long because once we have all of these fans you won't get the good access anymore
1: Exactly. Yeah. No. So <laughs> next next few years, not not this yeah, year, probably not next year. year. Maybe maybe the year after we might be able to get there. But uh, when
2: the new car is twenty twenty three, Tom. That
1: that'll be that oh, be the perfect.
2: Hybrid, sorry, the hybrid yeah. engines twenty twenty three Then the yeah. new hybrids comes we'll
1: out. Anyway,
0: right. we'll we we'll wrap it up there. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you, you very much. so thank you. much.
3: Thank you very much. Cheers. cheers. Thank you. Cheers.
2: Bye. Bye. And that's Tino. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Tino Belly. Uh, director of aerodynamics at indycar um what an interesting career that man's had changing i mean i i he's he's obviously an older man i think he must have changed jobs i mean he's changed jobs more than i have and i work in the film industry yeah you change jobs and every five minutes. well you say <laughs> that, that but really he impressive.
1: you say that but he he changed role but he worked for for the team that became andretti autosport for 14 seasons so
2: yeah but that 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 company kept changing names.
1: Yes, I know, but it's, it's still it's so, still the same still yeah, the same play, Still the yeah. same thing. It's like I change my jobs um, quite frequently, but I still work for the same company I've worked for nearly twenty years. So Yeah. It's uh it's the same thing. But yeah.
2: So let's talk F one for a little, little bit. A little bit of testing. Let's interesting talk about testing.
1: Interesting. It's gonna be an interesting season. I mean I I always thought it was gonna be crazy. Are we sure?
2: Because last time in testing, Williams were number one at one point.
1: I don't remember Williams being top of testing.
2: They were, no, we had this debate. No, we Going didn't. Go back to episode one or two, it's in there. Uh,
1: I, I, I am willing to bet money on Williams not being. They may have been first. They were
2: fastest, they were fastest or fa- something. Yeah, they may
1: have been first out of the pits. <laughs> but no, they, they were not top of testing. Have okay, not been top nice. of testing since I would say at Fine. least 2014. Fine. But anyway, Fine. it's it's looking interesting. I mean, I, I'm not for one second saying that Mercedes are not still the favourite because they are, but they are definitely on the back foot. They're
2: always going to be the favourite, aren't they?
1: Definitely on the back foot. It looks at the moment that Red Bull may start the season strongest, which is something that has not happened, not happened since 2012.
2: What's, what's that? Why is that changed?
1: Um, it's I, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, there's, there's a lot of carryover on on the Red Bull chassis, obviously, and uh, Mercedes have gone, seem seemingly gone quite aggressive with the new strategy. But I think the biggest overriding factor is that with the aero changes, um, Mercedes have always had the the lowest rake car on the grid because their philosophy has been. Aimed more towards low rake, and the Red Bull chassis has been aimed more towards high rake. They've been on the complete opposite ends of the scale. Now, the 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 high rake philosophy means you get much more pointy downforce, and it's and it's it's very um, the 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 peaky downforce is is like The, the peaks are great, but um, but then it can drop off quite easily, and then you've got much more even performance curve on a, on a low rake. And they've got the lowest rake Mercedes, and with the new floor regulations i think it's going to hurt the low rate design the most um yeah. i do think that they've i mean if you look at the times they've uh, they they're not they're not far off but they're just not yeah. where you would expect them to be i mean when you've got yuki Sonoda in the alpha tori with the second fastest time of the entire test and that's, that's, is on the softest tyre to be fair, but that's, um, that's just. So he's got to be driver of the test, yeah, hasn't that's he? That's really? just less than a tenth of a second off Max Verstappen. That's, that's phenomenal. Uh, I mean, Ferrari are looking better. Um, mm-hmm. Still, I mean, what their, their quickest time was only three tenths off, uh, oh no, it's a second, sorry. It's uh, seven tenths off, off Max Verstappen. Um, I don't think everyone's showing their true pace yet, but Williams, George Russell up there in what, about fifth, sixth place? Uh, I think for George Russell, maybe yeah. seventh actually. Uh, yes, yeah, si- almost like sixth place. He's
2: almost like being Mr. Saturday again.
1: Still a second off. Still, a, still over a second off, and he is on softer well, that tires. That sounds like he's well. album level then. But again, he's you know his time on the same time on the same tire as Lewis Hamilton, less than a second behind Lewis Hamilton's quickest time of yeah. the entire test. Um, but just the amount of laps that they've been able to to get through Mercedes, they've they've recorded the least laps of anyone. And they just—I yeah. think that they're, they're not going to be the dominant car. It's just what can Red Bull do? In the, I mean, no one's had any reliability issues. Apart, from, I mean, Ferrari broke down once. I didn't—I admit I didn't really see much of the last test, but the first two tests I saw the whole thing, um, start to finish. Yeah. Um, that's sixteen hours. I'm never getting back. I didn't see any of the tests. Yeah, yeah eight-hour tests. Two, <laughs> two stints of four hours, so eight hours a day. Were
2: you just sat. Were you just sat there, just watching no, was, cars go
1: round. No, things? I was listening to it. Oh, right. um, and i watched some of it when i could but yeah i
2: was listening to it particularly but yeah it's um i mean times are... i've never ever like like everyone knows that i, I like i i enjoy formula one before we started this but i wasn't obviously a massive avid fan and i didn't even know that you could watch testing i didn't even think it was an actual thing until i started seeing lots of people talking about it and i was like what is everyone on about? Like, I didn't even know it was even on TV. It's
1: only been, it's only been on TV the last sort of four or five years. It's not been. That's still,
2: that's yeah. And they've not always, they've
1: not always covered it all. This year is the first time they've covered all of testing, but equally, equally, there's only one test this year. Whereas last year there were, there were two tests. The year before there were three tests. So it's, uh, it's the first time they've covered the whole, I think, I don't think they covered the whole thing last year. They might have done actually, but yeah, no, it Um, it is interesting. Um, I, times are fairly irrelevant at the moment but it looks like Alpha Tori are going to be in the fight in that fight for third when you look at, at mcLaren
2: that's really and, Aston Martin. and do you reckon that's to do with Red Bull as well some
1: like... yeah I mean it's partially because of that and um also they've got the benefit of being able to take more red Bull bits which aren't going to cost development tokens yeah but the team for me that's done the best job and this isn't me being biased but the team for oh god me it's not Mclaren is genuinely it? I think they've They've done the best job. The reason being because they've got that Mercedes engine and last year they risked third in the championship by bringing in aero developments which were going to suit this season. And Mm -hmm. they they brought them in. They risked third place by bringing in developments that weren't necessarily going to help their performance for the season, but it meant that they were able to get them on the car and they were homologated ready for this season, which means that um, when they use their tokens to fit the new engine in the car that was all they could do. So they've managed yeah. to, managed to bring that stuff in and it's been an absolutely flawless, um, integration. Mm. I don't remember any time where anyone has taken on a new engine and there's not been problems. Yeah. There's always been teething problems. They had three days to get it right. Twenty twenty-four um, 24 hours of running and they've, and they've, and they're not only
2: reliable, they're quick. They Which is, which is phenomenal. Yeah. Which, which is interesting. Um, and how were um, Aston Martin and...
1: struggling? Second, really? second least mar- miles pace-wise. Wow. Pace-wise, they're they're not horrendous. Well, I say that, but who was where's uh, where's Vettel's quickest time? Um, Lance Stroll put in the quickest time for Aston Martin, a one thirty point four on the C five on day two, uh, and Sebastian Vettel had no end of problems. He was actually the slowest regular runner. Wow! Um, it was only Roy Nissany in the Williams on day one <laughs> that did a slower,
2: slower time. Oh God! Um, do you know what though? I, I I might start sporting Aston Martin because, and I, I sent this to a text the other day because they do have the nicest outfits. Their outfits are nice. Um, <laughs>
1: the car, I I was kind of. I it, like the car. No, leave it no, alone. No, I like the car. It's probably in my top four liveries, but. I was Ooh. like, kind of.
2: Yeah, hang on, hang on. Top four liveries. Well, you take out the Haas. Yep. You probably take out the Williams. Yep. Yeah, take out the Ferrari. Yeah. Because it's a Ferrari with just a red bum. It's, just, it's like it's been just like smacked on the arse. That's mm. what's happened to that car.
1: Yeah, with, um, with the green snot And it hasn't on the gone side, any faster. With the green snot huh? on the side as well. With the green
2: snot on the side. Um, McLaren's you'll obviously like. Well, yeah, but they're not my
1: favourite livery. Happen. Alpine is no, the best livery on that grid.
2: That is. Alpine is definitely the best. It's definitely it the best. It doesn't
1: look licking. as nice as when they first released it because. Oh, I do. I think it looks cool on the track. Yeah, I just think it, it looks a bit more matte. It looks so glossy on the pictures and just looks stunning. Um, but mm. I think it doesn't look quite as good on track. Uh, I don't know where I'd actually rate them in order, but Aston Martin. I just I was just expecting more. I think it's. I mean, look, I love I love green cars. I own a green Jag, so you know British racing green and and British cars. That's me. You know, Aston Martin should be my favourite livery, but it isn't. Which yeah. yeah, I mean, I like the Mercedes. I probably put the Mercedes about on a par with the Aston Martin, but um, yeah. I like the teal. The Patronus teal, um the fact that's a bit more prominent now. But the the Aston Martin, I think they could have gone with something a little bit a little bit more striking rather See than just know, I a like, flash of pink. I like
2: the little send up. I like the send up of the pink from BWT and it's head the heritage. Um I think they that, there was there was a version of it with the green, like the yellowy yeah. green and I think down it and that looks great. Um and very much, but I think do you know what the best-looking car on that track is? Gone, on. The safety car. <laughs> the Aston Martin safety car. Yeah, I cars. mean, because it's, got, I'd like it's got the
1: yellow trim and not the pink trim.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's, the Aston Martin yeah. safety car. Except, except I've, I've divorced my wife. Why is that? She liked the red Merc. I, d- I like the Merc as well. I, I love both of them. No, I divorce. It looks better but than... i divorced you once. I'll divorce you again. It looks better than I'll the I'll divorce the wife. Yeah, I agree. But it's not as good as the Aston. Hmm. No. Love the Aston on that one. I mean, the Red Bull looks anyway, nice, but it always um, it just looks the same. What as happened to Signs? This he's definitely week. struggling. I mean, I, I have. Well, he's in a Ferrari. What were you expecting yeah, but compared to? What were we expecting compared to Charles Leclerc? He's he's definitely struggling. I mean, oh, of course he will. It's it's he's. I don't know. Like you know, I thought it was a good idea. It really wasn't him going there. I think it's not. It's not good. Like. Ferrari were a lame horse anyway, and now they've got a jockey that was in a better car trying to make it work and he just can't. Leclerc's been in that car long enough to know how the lame horse works and get the best out of that lame house. Yeah. I mean But when you've been in a better car and you're coming to a lame horse, you don't really want to be riding it. Do you know what I mean?
1: I mean it's he, he's I mean he's put in quicker time. Uh, his quickest time was quicker than Leclerc's quickest time. Um yeah. but which which you know he was on a softer tyre, but um, even so, it's it's he just doesn't seem to be getting to grips with the car. He's making a lot of mistakes. I haven't seen it properly yet because I missed a lot of the last test. But he had a collision mm. with Raikkonen on the last day, which yeah, which he's uh, which he's been blamed for. Um, I just think he, he's just a bit on the back foot. I mean, I think that 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 partnership, Leclerc and Science, could be potentially the
2: strongest partnership on the grid because they're. I think I don't know what you're on about because yeah they could be if they were in Mercs. Being in the Ferraris, they're never no, going to get anywhere. No, but strongest partnership is what I'm saying, and I think you know Vettel. I don't know what that even means because, like, uh, uh, yeah, uh, like what depends on how you how do you even say that that's a strong partnership?
1: So I think I think Hamilton is obviously where Hamilton is, What he's probably going to be slightly declining now. Bottas is yeah. broken. In general, um, <laughs> I think Verstappen and Perez is is going to be good, but I think it's also going to be combustible. I think yeah. Norris and Ricardo is also potentially be combustible. Uh, potentially combustible, but um, I think because McLaren are on the up, that's that's giving them some some space. Um, I do. I just think that between those two, I rate Carlos Sainz. I rate him almost as highly as I rate Charles Leclerc, and I think he is going to give him problems. Well, I'm not
2: saying that they're a good team. I just think. It's just going to be a really random... It's such a random thing to say that they're going to be the best it's i didn't say they're going to be the best this.
1: i think they're going to they are potentially one of the strongest if not the strongest pairing on the grid as in when it comes to talent levels yeah. where, where they are with regards to their current ability yeah. their potential ability i think they but might they're,
2: they're, both America, uh, they're, sorry, they're both in a sorry they're both in ferrari so but no ferrari
1: will be in that. that fight i think now you, you've not. got they're
2: never gonna no, be no, in that no,
1: fight no. they're in the fight for third because you've got no you've no, got no, mercedes no, no. Mercedes are going to be, or Mercedes and Red Bull are going to be out front, and in the fight for third, you've basically got everyone fighting for third except for Williams, Alfa Romeo, and Haas. I think right. genuinely, you're gonna, so you're gonna have five people vying for third, five teams.
2: Which, well, then you've also got five teams vying for for seventh.
1: Yeah, so what I'm saying is, it's gonna, they're going to be in that fight between 3rd yeah. and 7th. And when you've got that fight, the strongest driver pairing is going to come through. That's the reason McLaren got 3rd last year, because they had the strongest driver pairing out of the teams fighting for 3rd. Vettel and Stroll, I can't see Aston Martin getting 3rd unless they have a very strong advantage. Yeah, I can see McLaren being in that fight because of their pairing. I can see Ferrari being in that fight. It depends how quickly Yuki Tsunoda gets up to speed in whether Alfa mm-hmm. Tori can be in that fight. Um, I think uh, Alpine could be, but it just depends on, on how Alonso is and how the new management structure gels. I think they're on the back foot.
2: Yeah, they've not got much of a chance, and especially as Alonso was in the testing.
1: Yeah, Alonso was testing. Oh, was yeah, he? Yeah, he was testing. But uh, yeah, I mean, his... um
2: I thought he still had his George.
1: No, no, he was doing that testing. He set a faster time. Said, I mean, uh, Ocon wasn't really doing any performance running at all. His fastest time was on day 1. Um, I mean,
2: Ocon doesn't do performance running full stop No, That's anyway, true. So but that's...
1: he was like <laughs> he was like second quickest on day 1 or something like that. He was up there on day 1, but he's he set a time on the uh, on the C4 the the seconds off this tire on day 1 which was his quickest lap, but it was only 16th quickest overall. Alonso was 10th quickest overall on the same tire. Um, but again, that was that was on day three, so it's had two more days of running. Wow. So it's it just depends how Alonso is against against Ocon, and just how all that works out. It's uh, but I just think driver pairing is going to make such a difference.
2: Well, we'll find out in two weeks' time, won't we?
1: We will. It's uh... and
2: yeah. So two weeks' time, we'll be back doing it.
1: We will be, um, and we will have. We're not
2: having. We actually we are going to have a guest. Yes, aren't we're we? going to have
1: Laura back on the show, Laura who, who did the F2 finale last year. She's going to do the yes. uh, the the F2 um, season opener this year in Bahrain. Um, yeah. So and that obviously we're going to talk about the F1 as well. Um, so that'll be in two weeks' time. So uh, unless we end so up. So when
2: is the, When is the next race?
1: The first the, the next race we're covering is F1 Bahrain and F2, which is on the twenty on the twenty eighth. Uh, So we're back on the 29th.
2: So we're back on the 29th. Oh, so we're not getting Bez on then.
1: Uh, No, Bez will, he'll be coming shortly afterwards, I think, because we, uh, we've got,
2: we've got so many, we've got Ian Davis coming
1: on, we've obviously got Charlie coming on for, uh, for our Formula E's, and then we've, we've also got another, another podcast, Uh, we're going to do a bit of a crossover uh, with the Grip Strip podcast, we're going to have Philip Matthew coming on, he's a bit of a, uh, well, American, general motorsports enthusiast (laughs) in general, this man knows something, this man knows, knows stuff about motorsports, I don't even know exist, (laughs) <laughs> he's a uh, very I,
2: do you know who i'd love to have him and the stat man against each other that would That'd be really that
1: would be interesting especially
2: as like head to head
1: phil's uh phil's opinions he doesn't hold back uh, no. he's
2: uh he's quite funny yeah he's good luck. yeah so
1: i'm looking forward to having him on um so yeah we've got guests coming out coming out of our A at the moment so i think potentially um we'll probably portugal or even actually maybe barcelona will get bez back on
2: Oh yeah, get the Spaniard yeah. back on for Barcelona. There's the Spaniard
1: back on for Barcelona. Let's do There's
2: you on for Barcelona, yeah. whether you like it or not. I don't care.
1: Right, um, done. Cool. I'm putting it right. in. So anyway, we will see you in a couple of weeks. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Tino, and we will see you once we know how good Mercedes are.
2: Probably not very good.
1: Right, bye. bye.
2: And I'm Carl. And I don't make mistakes. I make prophecies. Which emerge, immediately which immediately turned out to be wrong. Do that again. Much like how that... And I'm Carl. And I don't make mistakes. I make prophecies. And we... Oh, Jesus. Oh, look, I do make mistakes. Let's just clear it up. <laughs> this is the end, isn't it? This is the end. <laughs> oh, so yeah, I'm, yeah. Already. Right, sorted. Right. There, we've already done it. I mean, I've got two lines in. And I'm already finishing the end. Right. Right. Anyway. 10-3
0: and I'm Carl and I don't make-